You're listening to Conversations in Atlantic Theory, a podcast dedicated to books and ideas generated from and about the Atlantic world. In collaboration with the Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, these conversations explore the cultural, political, and philosophical traditions of the Atlantic world, ranging from European critical theory to the Black Atlantic to sites of indigenous resistance and self-articulation, as well as the complex geography of thinking between traditions, inside traditions, and from positions of insurgency critique and counter-narrative. Today's conversation is with Bruce Jantz, professor of philosophy at the University of Central Florida in Orlando, Florida, where he also co-directs the Center for Humanities and Digital Research. In addition to dozens of articles, he is the editor of a special journal issue with History of Intellectual Culture on Space and Interdisciplinarity, and a volume with Springer titled Place, Space, and Hermeneutics with Sean Gallagher, Lauren Reinerman, Patsy Morrow, and Jörg Trempler, he co-authored A Neurophenomenology of Awe and Wonder Toward a Non-Reductive Cognitive Science, published in 2015 with Palgrave Macmillan. Jantz is the single author of two books on African philosophy, Philosophy in an African Place, published by Lexington Books in 2009, and a book just out with Bloomsbury Publishing entitled African Philosophy and an Activist Cognition, The Space of Thought, which is the occasion for our conversation today. In this conversation, we examine the meaning of Africa, of philosophy, and what conjoining both terms means for wisdom, politics, culture, and tradition, and how thinking in that conjunction is linked to conceptions of place. Hello, Bruce. Welcome. It's great to have you here to talk about your new book. Hi, John. Great to be here. So, uh, first of all, and I I communicated this to you before, um, I really am a huge fan of this book. I really love it. I think it has the potential to make some some really deep impacts on some of our overlapping and shared fields and uh, has a lot to say about African philosophy and its its persistence in the present and into the future. And we'll get into all that, but I just, I think this is an enormously important book. So not only did I like it and I think it's interesting to talk about, but I'm glad to be a little bit a part of trying to get some ears and eyes on it because I think it's super important. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And, and you know, this, I guess you could say, it was a bit of a labor of love. Um, you know, it just uh, felt like there was something something that needed to be said that wasn't being said. And, uh, you know, and I thought the best access point was really, you know, looking at the familiar beats within the story that we tell about African philosophy. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm hoping, I mean, obviously it's a little bit like saying, you know, I want to make a viral video. Well, no, you want to make a video. <laughs> And you hope it's viral, yes, <laughs> right? <laughs> so I made a book, and we'll see what happens with it. <laughs> yes. Well, I like that it's a, a, a bit of a labor of love. You know, I think that, um, you know, uh, writing is, is, is such a grind that right. being, uh, being invested at that labor of love level is, is really important. I think it shows in the book, you know. Anyone who knows mm. your work uh, can see that this is a, a, a project you built up to. Yeah. And so really just maybe to get started on, on that sort of labor of love uh, motif, you know, anytime you write a book, it's an existential event. You know, you put aside mm-hmm. your, you know, all kinds of things from sleep to relationships <laughs> to uh, healthy eating habits or whatever <laughs> it is in order to spend, you know, often years 
you know, researching, writing, editing, and so forth. So something moves us, you know, so maybe it will be partly the intellectual story and partly that labor of love or of the heart story. But I just wanted to invite you to sort of talk uh, for us a bit about how you came to this project. What were the, some of the ethical or political philosophical concerns that really moved you to the questions of the book and why write this book now? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess there's a lot of answers I could give to that, some of them stretching further back in my own, uh, you know, academic history and even in my own life and some of the more recent. Um, you know, I I got into African philosophy at, in part reluctantly and in part because of my friend Emmanuel Eze. Uh, Emmanuel was the one who, I mean, I met Emmanuel in the philosophy department at uh, the University of Nairobi, and he was traveling, and I was there for the summer, and we started talking and realized that um, we had more in common with each other than either of us had with anyone else in the department. And so we stayed in hmm. touch, and we kept working on things, and he kept pulling me in. He he had a collection called Postcolonial African Philosophy, and he said, hey, you should contribute something to it. And I said, what are you talking about? I mean, <laughs> I'm not African. I'm not part of the African diaspora. My work has been on phenomenology, it's been in hermeneutics, it's been on place and space. What do I have to say? And he kept saying, no, no, actually you do have something to say. And hmm. um, there is something worthwhile here when we bring together questions of phenomenology in place and space with questions about Africa. And, and so that initial suggestion got me thinking really about how to work on the question of philosophy's own place. In other words, what does it mean for philosophy itself to have a place, to mm. come from a place, to care uh -huh. about a place, to, to yearn to create a place, all of those things. I mean, often we think about philosophy as rising above place and not, not having any, any location or any, any commitments. And, and, and that's never sat very, very comfortably with me. And so Emmanuel's invitation really was an invitation to think about Africa as a place and to be and to think about thinking in that place specifically in a place that has been largely marginalized and rejected by um, certainly Western philosophy over mm -hmm. much of its history, and I thought, okay, so you are you, you you are in this place. There is philosophy happening. We know there is. I mean, you know, human society, human culture, human existence is an act of engaging intellectually with our world and creating concepts that are adequate to that. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, how is it that we could keep marginalizing Africa as a place that is productive of philosophy? And so out of that came my first book, which was called Philosophy in an African Place, which tried to work through some of those kind of questions. But it felt at the end of that book that I was, I'd, I'd set the table, but there was no dinner yet. <laughs> you know, there was nothing yet to, mm -hmm. to, to really um, uh, think about the, the details of that place. And, and I'm still faced with the fact that I'm, you know, I'm Canadian. I'm not part of the African diaspora. You know, I'm working in the U.S. I'm, you know, trained in the Western tradition as well as the African tradition, but mainly Western. I don't have all of those identity mm -hmm. markers of uh, most people who have been interested in African philosophy. And so what that meant for me was to really think about not only the place that is Africa, but my own place in relation to that, and mm -hmm. the implications in the in the um, you know the ways in which people like me have come in presumptively to tell Africans how they ought to think, 
or tell Africans what they should think or why they're not measuring up or things like that. I was acutely aware yeah. of that history. So, you know, when it came, you know, as I thought further about what it meant to be in that place, I realized that the access point that I had was really the texts that were put into the public realm within yeah. African philosophy. I'm not going to make any claims to represent African lived existence, um, African life, uh, either from the continent or in the diaspora. Um, you know, my place is not that place. You know, I have other mm -hmm, things to mm -hmm. say about place that I'm from and that I'm familiar with. But that doesn't mean that place is a hermetically sealed silo, right? We mm -hmm, can talk mm -hmm. across placial borders. And I thought my access point is the stuff that's been put into the public realm. And so what drove me to write this book really was looking back at some of the major turning points in the story that we tell about African philosophy. And th that story, you know, can obviously go back centuries and, and even millennia, but um, often the modern story that we tell goes back about to the mid 20th century. Uh, often we start with something like negritude, or maybe we start with uh, uh, temples, uh, Placid temples, uh, and mm -hmm. Bantu philosophy. We start with some point, maybe it's a positive statement, maybe it's something that everyone wants to argue against, but there are these markers on the way in the story that we tell about African philosophy. And I wanted to say, what if that story that has been told is not the only story that could be told? Mm -hmm. What if there are other ways to think about what it means to think from a place that does not start from the presuppositions that uh, philosophy often starts from. Um, and I'm mm -hmm, sure we'll get into mm -hmm. some, what some of those are, but you know, uh, what I wanted to do was tweak that, that, that story, not to say that the story that's usually accepted is, is inadequate or it's not the right one or people should give it up, but that there is another story that can be told. Yeah. So thinking about the, that, that story to be told, I, I really like that. Thank you for that, that reflection. It's really interesting. Um, I want to ask you about the title. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, some titles are, you know, super evocative and like, perform <laughs> a, a big gesture and others right. are sort of directly descriptive. And this is right. one that is, you know, has a very uh, a direct description. I, yeah. You know, I, I don't know. I don't know if you're like me, where I always have a really great title, and then the editor's like, "That's a great title in, in your desk at your desk." For the rest of us, we need different titles. But at, on, on, so, on the one hand, you have a very straightforward title, right? Right. But it's also a title that I wanted to ask about because it bears a ton in it uh, in terms of questions and yeah. already ways of posing the problems that the book takes off. So starting with um, African philosophy, right? You know, I want to. I know this has been your field for years, um, but I want to hear maybe a, a few words about just what is meant by African. You know, how how one puts content to this question, African, right? right. Uh, or this this term, African, uh, as well as philosophy, which, as as you noted, you know, ha has played an intellectually imperial function for right. for for centuries, right? right? as it, you know, travels or fails to travel from this sort of Greek fantasy origin of the West to other parts of the world. So, you know, what is what is your own conception of philosophy such that it can be attached to African? And right. what is African such that it is a thing that you that helps 
sort of modulate or direct a philosophical meditation. And then after that, I also wanted to act, ask about an activist cognition. Yep. You know, why this element of philosophical thinking? Why this as the idea that you sort of travel uh, to as an interpretive frame uh, to the continent? You know, right. what do we see through this notion of an activist cognition that we wouldn't otherwise see in African philosophy? So right. I know it's a big sort of three-part question, really, but <laughs> African philosophy and an activism. Yeah, lots to work with there. Well, so, you know, in, in some ways, I, I take some inspiration from V.Y. Madimbe and his reflections on, you know, how we think about Africa in classic books, you know, the idea of Africa and the invention of Africa, or I guess the, mm -hmm. the other way around in publication dates. But, you know, what, what I think Madimbe does for us is to help us think about what we mean by the notion of African not just as a geographical location, but as a, a way of engaging the world. And, you know, for me, I, 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 I use the word place, or I use the notion of place in a fairly kind of um, extensive sense. So a place mm -hmm. is not simply location for me. It is, um, you know, the forms of engagement we have with our material and our social world. It's, it's inhabitation. Right. So so mm -hmm. we have habits that that take us through our world that leave much of our world uh, transparent to us. It's transparent because it's 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 bred in the bone. Right. It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, mm -hmm. when I when I, uh, you know, do something that I've done a million times before, I don't think about doing that unless something has gone wrong. You know, mm -hmm. so there's echoes of Heidegger in the background here. Right. So, um, you know, for me thinking about the notion of the African, and this could be applied to other places as well, but it's, it's a um, embodiment of a number of different kind of placial um, uh, uh, questions that are asked. Mm -hmm. And those can go from a very um, high, if you wish, high level, uh, like the word African itself, designating an entire continent. I mean, I often get people saying, well, you know, African philosophy, there's like lots and lots of people there and lots of cultures and lots of this mm -hmm. and that, you know, how can there be an African philosophy? And, and at one level, I agree that, you know, that that is a legitimate observation. On the other hand, there are questions to ask about that level. Africa was rejected as Africa, not as, yeah. you know, the Zulu or the Luo or, uh, you know, whoever. And so there are philosophical questions that are legitimate to ask about that level. But there are also philosophical questions, uh, ethical questions, political ones, um, epistemological ones to ask about a world that is uh, more geographically constrained than that. Um, mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. we can we, we easily talk about place um, that is in the same geographical location when we think about um, the place of the uh, of the wealthy and uh, well healed versus the place of the homeless in a let's say a, an urban urban scape, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe the same street, but the place mm -hmm. is not the same, even though the materiality yeah. of it may be the same. And so, and so once we start thinking about place in those terms as forms of life that are afforded, um, you know, and and that all of us inhabit multiple of those at the same time mm -hmm, and are mm -hmm. constantly negotiating between those places and the, the, the inhabitations that, that accrue to those, then we start thinking about Africa, I think, as, you know, the, the localized um, uh, uh, strategies of success that we build to get through life, mm -hmm. to get through the day, if you wish. Now, at that level, it might be nothing more than just 
um, you know, putting one foot in front of the other foot. But I think one of the features of the human condition is that we then reflect on those. We, yeah. we create concepts around those things. We um, try and transport those concepts to other places. In other words, we do philosophy on them. That's why I'm very committed to the idea that philosophy exists wherever humans exist. Yeah. Um, it is not something that was simply uh, imagined in Europe and then transported to other places. And uh, the great tragedy, I think, of the modern era has been that, that we have uh, implicitly bought that idea that somehow philosophy is a fundamentally European thing and everyone else has to f show how they measure up to, to that yeah. ideal. I mean, look, this is like a... Like a <laughs> like a real complaint of mine. I mean, I just, to, just to, to, in some ways, just repeat you, but, you know, for me, that's part of what, what stalls out talking about something like African philosophy or Caribbean philosophy, African-American philosophy, you know, right. Chinese philosophy, et cetera, is this idea that philosophy is somehow a property of the text. Right, right, right. right. Yeah. Rather than a feature of, as you say, the human condition. Right? Yeah. The struggle to make meaning, to to reproduce meaning, and so forth. Yeah. And in that way, I mean, once you start thinking about philosophy, I mean, my own take is that it's a method of reading. You know, I can yeah. find in in a musical piece, a poem, an artwork, in the 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 way people hold their bodies, philosophy. Yeah. As an interpretive uh, approach, right? Yeah. But it's not a property of any. It's it, you know, if it's reduced to a property of a given text. First of all, as you point out, that's just the the way that other parts of the world end up being disparaged as not or less philosophical. Right. right. Um, as well as the fact that I always like to point out that that if it's a property of a text, that's a literary distinction. That's actually not a philosophical distinction. Right. Sure. Exactly. Yeah. In some ways, I just wanted to say that because I say it all the time, and I just it very <laughs> it really bothers me. So I mean, I I really liked hearing what you said because it, it liberates. Uh, philosophy itself, right, to, yeah. to, to a broader sense of thinking. Yeah, and you know, I think, um, I, I mean, some people might listen to this and say, well, you know, have we given up on rigor? Have we given up on, on you know, uh, uh, logical argumentation and, and things like that? And, and I think, no, absolutely we haven't. But there is a certain danger in limiting philosophy only to those kinds of, um, you know, uh, 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 rhetorical procedures or, or kind of textualizations. I mean, you know, I am often guided by the history of feminism, and one thing that I think is noteworthy in the history of feminism is the ways in which other kinds of literature, uh, people start realizing that there's philosophical activity going on in them, like letters, for example. Mm -hmm. um, exactly. You know, so, so it's not just the treatise, you know. So now that, you know, once we open that kind of literature base to, to something larger, then we can say, oh, yeah, it's been here all the time. I mean, it, it was always here. It, it was not that they've now just decided to do philosophy in this form. It was always yeah. here. And, of course, the, the irony always in that is rooting it in the pre-Socratics and Plato and Socrates, right. uh, none of whom were treatise writers. But, yeah. <laughs> right, exactly. I sidetracked us a little bit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. About, what about an activist cognition? That's, right. I, think, I mean, I think that's the part that's going to catch people's eye. Yeah. Luckily, and, in, and you're no small part of this, I do think the notion of African philosophy is increasingly um, a point of attention and, and, and for some begrudging and for others just given uh, right. you know, a category of respect or a tradition uh, you know, that now has been elaborated in some depth. The inactivist cognition, I think, is the part that will make people say, 
sort of pick up the book, flip it over. What's this anachronist cognition? <laughs> yeah. What is what is it going to do right. for our reading of of African philosophers? Well, so a little bit on on an activism, and and um, this is an approach within um, the cognitive sciences. Uh, it's sometimes called four E cognition, and so those four E's are. Let's see if I can get them all right here. Um, em embodiment, uh, like in other words, cognition is embodied. It happens in your body, not just simply in your mind. Um, mm -hmm. uh, embeddedness, which means you are embedded in a social world. Uh, in other words, it doesn't just happen at, with you as an individual. It happens between you and other individuals. And sometimes, um, you know, it's not just a, a between thing, but it's a collective thing. Um, extendedness. That's the third one, and that uh, refers to um, cognition happening in our devices. So, you know, the, the example I usually use is uh, the iPhone. You know, we extend our cognition into this by using it for memory, using it for all sorts mm -hmm, of different things, mm -hmm. and we've always done that uh, in, yeah. in our technology, in our built environment, in all sorts of ways. And then the fourth one is, is in activism itself. And this is really, you know, I trace it back to Heidegger ultimately, but it's the idea that the concepts that we have are not simply things that are prior to the actions uh, that we do or our engagement with the world. In other words, the arrow goes both directions. In other mm -hmm. words, sometimes our concepts are the result of the actions that we do, the inhabitation of the world that we that we take on. Yeah. Um, we, we come to realize. We don't simply realize first and then go and act on those realizations. Uh -huh. And so what this... What inactivism really is, is uh, among uh, cognitive scientists, is really an alternate explanation to classic forms of, or explanations of cognition, especially computationalism. So that is the model in which our minds are like um, software, like computers, essentially. Uh, they are run on programming, and so we have concepts in the mind, and those concepts are executed, like computers execute programs, and then... Um, you know, all of our actions are accounted for by, you know, that, that mental apparatus first. And so what we have uh -huh. to account for then is, is all that mental stuff and then all of the rest of it, all of the kind of embodied action in the world is a secondary uh, downstream mm -hmm. characteristic of that. And so an activism usually is seen as an explanation. And so that is very much not the uh, approach that I'm taking with it. This is the my challenge back to an activists. Okay. It, it doesn't have to just be an explanation. It can be how we do philosophy. Mm -hmm. In other words, how we actually, you know, philosophy often, I think sees itself as, as, as separated off from the, um, the, the, the kind of accounts of thinking in the world. You know, we stand back from them. We can have philosophies of psychology, philosophies of cognition, philosophy of this, philosophy of that. Mm -hmm. And um, I think it, 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 it breeds in philosophers often, I mean, I think it's an occupational hazard, actually, that we often think that to do philosophy is to construct arguments, to argue for propositions, which we then hold in almost a kind of neoliberal model. You know, I have property. This property mm -hmm. are my propositions. And I assemble these propositions in a coherent whole, and then I try and convince others of those propositions. And that's what it means to be a philosopher. Mm -hmm. And so what I want to do, actually, in an inactivist spirit is to re-embody philosophy in the, in the world of experience. And, you know, I'm not the mm -hmm. first to do that. I mean, you see that in pragmatists. You see that in other, you know, traditions as well. 
But the specific way I want to do that is to move the gold standard of philosophy away from the proposition to the question. Okay? Got it. In other words, instead of thinking that our job is to construct a well-founded set of propositions that we then defend, what our job is, I mean, propositions don't go away. We'll always have them. But our job <laughs> is to get to the next good question, right? mm -hmm. the next well-asked mm -hmm. question. And I, I take some of inspiration for this from people like Gaston Bachelard, um, who, uh, who wrote about this in the context of science um, way back in the 1940s. Um, you know, he, he talked about the notion of the problematique, right, and the, problem, mm -hmm. the problematic. And the problematic is a space that's afforded by asking a question. And so his question was, how does science change its theoretical structures? Well, um, is it just that it's a, a linear progression? Well, no, it's not that. It has to sometimes change its entire theoretical, you know, superstructure. Mm -hmm, and for mm -hmm. him, it was not the, you know, the answer of Thomas Kuhn, which is changing the paradigms, old generations die off, new ones come in. For him, the answer was you, you find a way to ask a new question that offers a new space of thought. And see, mm -hmm. there's, my, there's my subtitle, right? Yeah. So there, there is that space of thought made available by asking a question in a different way. So mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. back to African philosophy and really back to my first book. What I argued in my first book was that there was a question that was an illegitimate question. Um, that was very, very common in African philosophy. And that illegitimate question is... Is there an African philosophy? Uh, and I claim that that's illegitimate because it's not an African question. It's a question asked by a skeptical West. Prove to me. Prove to me you have this. Yeah. Right? It's, it's on you. The onus is on you. Prove to me. And so mm -hmm. if we don't ask that question, what other question can we ask? And in the mm -hmm. first book, I argued the question is, what is it to do philosophy in this African place? And that opens mm -hmm. up a new kind of space of, uh, of thought, a new space of discussion. No longer are we proving to a skeptical West. Now we're asking, what could be created that is adequate to the lived experience of people in a place? Mm -hmm. right? So again, I take, I take um, some inspiration from, uh, from the history of feminism on this. I mean, you know, I think there was a point in feminism where it, it, it made a turn from the idea that uh, kind of a me too idea, like in other words, you know, uh, you know, Rousseau comes along and says, uh, we should educate kids a new way, you know, in the Emile. And Mary Wollstonecraft says, well, what about girls too, right? And so there's, mm -hmm. you know, this sense of, you know, us too, us too. And then it, it, it's like there's a turn that gets made in the mid 20th century where it's like we've convinced everyone we're gonna convince. Now, what does it mean to work from women's experience, to construct concepts that are adequate to that experience. Yeah. You know, so we get care ethics and we get quite, uh, you know, concepts like sexual harassment, which was trying to mm -hmm. articulate a certain experience and that was dismissed, systematically dismissed, right? Yeah. And now we get to all these concepts that come out of feminism that are absolutely crucial as far as I'm concerned. And I think that mm -hmm. same turn is the turn that I'm trying to see happening in African philosophy as well. What does it mean when we stop trying to convince a skeptical West and start saying, what are the concepts that could be created that are adequate to the experience of people who live in Africa or are affected by that life? Yeah, no, thank you. I, I, I love that. That was, that was a, a lot there, really uh, rich comment. Um, and it's... Uh, 
both deep and and surface, but I'm I'm happy to hear you recover the important meaning of problematic, of a problematic. <laughs> yeah. You know, I don't know when you did your PhD, but I was a 91, 96 PhD student. And uh, always already and problematic were technical terms, right? Yeah. They'd come out of, I you know, know Bachelard, Heidegger, Gadamer, and then they become tropes that people sort of make fun of. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Problematic is a very particular thing in the French tradition. I swear to God, you know. It is. Um, well, and, it, and it got captured by Althusser um, from Bachelard, and he turned it into epistemological break because he wanted an account of uh, of changes within Marxism. You know, how do you move hmm. in Marxism from one thing to another? And so he actually got it straight from Bachelard and made it into a kind of revolutionary concept. And I'm trying to recover it from Althusser to make it into a, you know, a larger epistemological concept again. Yeah. Well, I, I admire and, and am very <laughs> grateful for that work. Let's get our word back. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, let me ask you, um, in some ways you've, you've, you've uh, you know, answered this indirectly, but maybe it's worth also um, asking as a sort of point of focus. Um, you know, one of the things I do when I read books, I, mean, I think we all do it, is ask sort of what kind of book is this, mm-hmm. right? And what's interesting to me about just that, as you talked about the title of your book, is moving across borders, right? Right. Um, in ways that you want to be and absolutely are successful in making very productive, very philosophically insightful, productive, and sort of moving a, a, a sense of discourse um, forward. But, you know, there's this sort of also this other question. So much of what we do when we're writing about figures that are, you know, either unknown or underappreciated in Mm -hmm. our immediate community, say philosophy, you know, we're both here in the U.S., um, you know, that that then means a lot of what we end up doing is expository. Right. Right. Just, you know, talking about their ideas. But, of course, that's not what this book is. It's not an introduction to some African thinkers, right? It's really formed by this notion of an activism, and that allows you, I think, to really retrieve a lot of insight uh, without it being largely expository. But it's also not really a comparative study book, right? It's right. not sort of puzzling over what these border crossings mean, right, in the way that sort of classical comparativist study does. So I just want to ask you sort of how do you understand or how would you characterize the orientation and nature of this project, given the resources that you use that travel across the Atlantic world, you know, north, south and and east, right. west? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and I guess there's some sense that there's a comparative aspect um, to this, especially if you look at the, 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 the framing of the book. I mean, after the introductory chapter, I have... Um, you know, a chapter on Sylvia Winter, and then before the conclusion, I have a chapter on Suzanne Rusi Césaire, um, the former wife of Amy Césaire, and so both of those are are Caribbean figures, right? They're not mm-hmm. they're not from the continent, but everyone in between is is uh, from the continent, and so, you know, in a certain sense, I thought of it less, I guess, as a comparative um, uh, project and more as here are two figures that I think are already doing what I, what I, what I want to see done in, on the continent, but is is latent. It's 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 not 
you know, it hasn't brought, been brought to the surface. I mean, you know, uh, Sylvia mm-hmm. Winter, I mean, she's directly using an activist terminology. I mean, she's using the notion of autopoiesis. She's talking about, you know, mm-hmm. Murdo Maturana and, and uh, Francisco Varela. She's talking about, you know, the hard problem of cognition. I mean, she's, she's directly doing it, right? Now, that's something that not a lot of people bring out with her because, yeah. I mean, she brings a lot to the table, right? I mean, if you want to read Winter, you better be ready to understand feminism, Renaissance history, uh, uh, theology, <laughs> um, uh, Caribbean literature, uh, philosophy, um, you know, and uh, cognitive studies, and, you know, probably a half dozen other things that I forgot, right? I, I just have to interrupt <laughs> you really quickly. I did a, um, I have a, a graduate student reading, doctoral student reading group, and somebody said they wanted to read some Sylvia Winter, because, you, know, uh-huh. um, you know, she's a sort of trendy figure these days, especially, I think, among younger scholars. And then when we met to talk, everybody was like, "Oh, this was a lot harder than I had <laughs> anticipated." And I'm like, "Yes, this is uh, this is yeah. you know, you have to you have to bring your big kid pants to a oh, Sylvia yeah, Winter yeah, yeah. reading. It's oh, serious business." <laughs> she she is drawing on so much stuff; it's kind of dizzying, actually. Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, reading her felt for me a little bit like the first time I read someone like Hegel. Uh, and that's not to say that I compare them in any way in terms of their philosophical approaches, but I remember reading someone like Hegel a bunch of times and then finally saying, ah, I see what's going on here. And, and, and reading her felt the same, same kind of way for me. Um, so, so I, I kind of bracket the, the, the kind of chapters in the middle with those two, uh, those two figures. And so what I'm doing in the middle is less about comparison with them. And I think it's, it's, actually a little bit cheekier um, than, than that. In each chapter, what I wanted to do was make this one little turn, and the, and the smaller the better, this one little turn that would put an entirely different light on, on the figure. And, mm-hmm. and it's a different mm-hmm. turn for each, for each, in each case. So, <clears throat> so for example, in the, um, in the first chapter after the Sylvia Winter, you know, um, it's, ostensibly about uh, Plessis temples and Bantu philosophy, but it's what it's really about is the Jama movement, who were yeah. the figures who adopted and, and took to heart what he was doing in that and, and um, you know, went places that I'm not even sure temples himself uh, uh, could have predicted. So that's a small turn. Like what, in other words, instead of saying, he wrote this book called Bantu Philosophy. Now, did he give us a Bantu philosophy or didn't he? I mean, that's what mm, people usually mm-hmm. do with that, right? What yeah. I wanted to do was, what was the reception of it? And not the reception in Europe, but the reception there. Yeah. And I think it's actually really interesting to say they found a way to use that to, to, to realize a potentiality in their lived experience that was not as obvious as it was before. And almost every philosopher seems to have missed this. Right? I mean, you yeah. hardly ever, you hardly ever hear the Jama movement mentioned among philosophers. It is among anthropologists, but not philosophers. That's so interesting. I mean, that's, I, I like that as a way of thinking about sort of, you know, how you enter and exit um, what at this point is sort of canonical African right. philosophy texts like Bantu philosophy. Um, because I think, you know, just to, just to, to go, you know, work with that for a minute, I mean, I think what happens, and I do think that this is a broadly colonial gesture, is, you know, were we talking about Merleau-Ponty, 
Mm-hmm. Right. If we were talking about French philosophy, we would be talking about, you know, where, you know, how was his thought revised, critiqued by the yep. people who followed him? You right. know, Foucault's critique of the body, a rigorized notion of, of, you know, fluidity and the flesh. And, you know, we, we would have all of these ways of moving out, as you say, as you put it, right, into its reception. Yeah. Right? But one of the things, I mean, it's a, it's like a flag for me. It's, it's, you know, how how much do people actually engage a figure in terms of their aftermath yeah, yeah. as well as the text itself? So I'm glad yeah. you said that because I think, you know, that, that helps me see how deeply uh, you're working with these as part of a continental uh, uh, intellectual movement rather yeah. than um, comparative study, which I mean, as a comparativist myself, I love comparative study, but it really is about critical engagement with, you know, historical experience and so forth and, and, you know, and different sort of political standing between texts and traditions. But this, this idea of, as you said, going through what I think many, many talk about, uh, perhaps too much as a colonial text or overly, um, you know, uh, prescriptive texts from a distance, like Bantu philosophy, instead thinking about, you know, what is it produced rather than what does it cut us off from? Uh, not yeah. produced by like temples himself, but as you said, right. it's reception. Yeah, and you know, I didn't want to ask the question: Is he right or isn't he right? Right, because that's where almost everyone seems to have gone almost immediately with him. You know, yeah. does he really represent Bantu, whatever that's supposed to mean? You know, all of Africa, some particular group. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, his method. What about his method? I mean, all, like all those were all the questions around him, and I think the question of what what that work made possible in a community is an entirely different but also very interesting question and and one that's that's been largely missed um you know the the next chapter is um the chapter on john and Beatty and um and time and you know if anything the the move i make there is even cheekier which is just read the whole damn book Right, because what <laughs> yeah. usually happens is Imagine when that. people, <laughs> what people, you know, when people think about it, the theory of time, they go to Mbidi, they go to the third chapter. It's fourteen pages long, and they stop there. And it's as if, you know, okay, Mbidi's a theologian most most of the time, but he does a little philosophy, and the rest of the book's going to be all about theology. So weird, it's not really of interest to us. Let's look mm-hmm. at this fourteen pages. And so, you know, what if we read the whole book? Well, he revises that chapter. You know, and he elaborates and he does all sorts of interesting things with it throughout the rest of the book. And mm-hmm. he actually gets us away from thinking about this as a philosophy of time and towards thinking about temporality, right? What does it mean to live Yeah. with the reality of time as being part yeah. of the uh, experience of humanity? And, and, you know, again, you don't have to agree with his conclusions. You don't have to agree with his Christian mission of, of conversion or whatever, but there is a different lens that can open up something new for him. So that's that's what I tried to do throughout this book to say, look, there's just sometimes we're so close, just a little reading that is slightly different could open up a whole new vista on these mm-hmm. classic writers. And I think that gets to the question of, you know, how you introduce thinkers, right? Right. Um, you know, uh, and and I, I, I like the way you put that. I mean, it's in some ways, it's, you know, you said, you know, part of your background, phenomenology, hermeneutics, it really is a sort of hermeneutic ethics. Right. Of, you know, what is the text composed of? Right. Right. In right. terms of its past and its future, both at right. the same time. So, 
And I think the book really does a good job with that, I have to say. I mean, I think that 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 may have been your intention as a writer, and it certainly is there in the book. And, you know, what we want to do as writers isn't always in the book, but th that certainly is. <laughs> well, thanks. I appreciate that. And, you know, I mean, one of my goals really in this is to think about philosophy as a future-oriented activity. In other mm -hmm. words, not to think of it as primarily there to either uh, uh, explain an account for the past or explain an account for the present. What does it look like if we think about the future instead? Which is why I spent so much time on versions of temporality in the first several chapters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I want to think about philosophy as, you know, our thinking allows us to act in the world in particular kinds of ways. Mm -hmm. uh, we can be better at that or worse at that. Um, the great, okay, a great violence and, and, and tragedy of colonialism is that it took those strategies of cognition out of Africa and said, here, they're all wrong. You should think like this. You should mm -hmm. use these strategies for cognition. You, you Africans don't have a far enough uh, 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 view of the future. You should have a view of the future, not even realizing that that was beside the point. Right. Yeah. That that that's not how temporality works. Right. We take a step. We revise. We take a step. We revise. Mm -hmm. right? That's mm -hmm. how we walk into the future. We don't plan for the next thousand years or even 10 years. We take a step and we revise. And, and so there's a cognitive kind of grounding in, uh, you know, in, in that kind of cultural approach that I think was was done huge violence to. I mean, it, you know, for me, that that is one of the great tragedies of colonialism, alongside of all the other great tragedies. Yeah. Yeah, that's nicely put. I mean, that's the the part of colonialism that's a total project, right? Yeah. It's, it's a material project in terms of resources and and, yeah. and political domination, but also a psychological project of completely revising the human person. Yeah. You know, as uh, as Fanon, you know, in, in Black Skin, White Masks put it, you know, to make the destiny of every black person to be white. Yeah, sure. Right? Absolutely and, right. I mean, he, he hit the nail on the head with that. Absolutely. And so that, that decolonization work that I think this book does, right, not as you're decolonizing Africa, but you're, you're, you are, you know, performing in the text, I think, a decolonized method of reading precisely in that moment of taking these these forms of cognition seriously on that, their own that terms. is my hope that is that is yeah. my hope i mean i'm trying to to at least open the door enough for there to be a a, a wider range of options so that we're not simply yeah. asking the question how do we demonstrate that there really is philosophy in africa which i think mm -hmm. has echoed in the background of a lot of activity even if it's not um, explicitly brought out. Yeah. So my two favorite chapters were the fourth and the sixth chapters. Mm -hmm. um, you know, since since I invited you here, I'll pick my favorites. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sounds um, good. But uh, I like the figures you treat the, you treated. I thought they were interesting. But I think just as much, if not more, I really liked in the fourth chapter the the in depth engagement with uh, sagacity. And in the, in the sixth chapter, the relationship between literature and philosophy. So I'd love mm -hmm. to hear you talk a little bit about this, this uh, notion of the sage and the idea of the literary um, right. in these chapters. Um, you know, I think in some ways you've set the stage by talking about, you know, how you do readings as a philosopher to, to, to articulate uh, philosophical meaning. 
But uh, this notion of the sage and this notion of literature or the literary, I think is so important for how we think about philosophy globally. I mean, these are always questions and, and figures of thought that emerge. But also, you know, those, the, the idea of the literary and of the sage are part of often what we mean when we say tradition, that traditions right. come from certain notions of wisdom and certain forms of, of literary excellence, whether it's mm -hmm. analytical or, or, you know, various other forms of expression. So really just asking you to talk a little bit about the sage, about the literary and philosophy, and maybe if, if you would, a few words about how these connect to a notion of tradition. Sure, yeah. I mean, I had a chapter on tradition in my uh, first book, uh, Philosophy in an African Place, but um, yeah, that does figure in here as well. And so, you know, following on what I said before about, you know, each of these chapters having a kind of slight shift of, of, of um, starting point or focus with the, um, with the chapter on sage philosophy in Aruka, I was struck by the fact that Aruka's last work before he died, before he was killed in an auto accident, um, was on Oginga Odinga, who is a very important figure in the history of Kenyan politics. Um, and what struck me about it was that, on the one hand, he spends a lot of time at the beginning of the book saying, this is sage philosophy. What I'm doing right now is sage philosophy. And then he spends the entire rest of the book doing something that doesn't look at all like anything he's ever done before in sage philosophy. <laughs> So how do these things go together? I mean, this just, it's just a very, very strange thing. And, and on top of that, I mean, uh, Gail Presby told me that when she had talked to uh, Aruka um, before he died, he was saying, and this is how I want to do sage philosophy going forward. Um, this is, this is a, a model for sage philosophy that I think is, is really important. Now, how is this different? Well, a lot of the sages that Aruka talked to were very much closely tied to traditional African communities. Um, they were not well-known national and international figures like Ogingo Odinga was. Um, you know, so the image of the sage was somebody who was much more, I guess you could say, authorized by the community, uh, repository of traditional wisdom mm -hmm. of the community. Um, you know, Aruka uh, distinguished between what he called folk sages and philosophical sages. And so folk sages were the, those who were repositories and, and the philosophical sages were those who brought a kind of reflective attitude towards those traditions, right? Mm -hmm. So there was a kind of critical stance, you know, maybe they agree, maybe they don't agree, but, but they're thinking philosophically. And for Aruka, that is, you know, that's the kind of uh, uh, what he's really looking for. He's really looking for those mm -hmm. who can be truly seen as philosophers in the traditional sense. And he's doing this, you know, at least originally as an answer to Pauli Nuntanji, who writes about ethno-philosophy and basically says there really is no philosophy in traditional Africa at all. What we need is a literature, and this is going to get us to the, the chapter six in a moment, what we need is a literature on which to build philosophy. And hmm, uh -huh. it's not really there yet. And so Aruka's answer basically is, oh, yeah, it's there. Look, I found some. Look, I interviewed them. Look, they're doing philosophical things. You can't mm -hmm. say there's not sages, uh, philosophers, because here they are. So that's kind of the classic way to take uh, Aruka. And, you know, I've talked a little bit about his method in previous writings. But what I was interested in here was how he ended up thinking about Ogengo Odinga as a sage 
mm-hmm. because he just does not seem to fit that model. He's sophisticated. He's, like I say, a national figure. He ran for, um, uh, you know, uh, presidency. He was uh, a friend and colleague of Kenyatta. I mean, he was just like a really, really important person. He met everyone. He met mm-hmm. Nixon. He met, you know, Mao. He met, you know, all these people. So what you see Oruka doing is really, I want to argue, giving us a third category of sage and what I'm calling mm-hmm. a prag- pragmatic sage. Okay. Yeah. So um, he's a philosopher, but not in that kind of reflective mode of kind of critiquing some traditional concept. What he's doing instead is he's... He's doing much something much closer to pragmatism, really. He's he's showing us how to live well and how to live um, successfully, given the reality and, and the materiality of the situation in which he finds himself. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, to me, is a really interesting turn for Aruka because it really means that he's turning away from trying to answer Huntanji's charge that there is mm-hmm. no philosophy in traditional Africa, and he's turning. He's now using sages in a different manner. He's now thinking of sages okay. as uh, you can be a sage and still be part of the modern world, right? mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and 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 you are an African sage. You are you've not you're not you're not some other kind of sage. You are still rooted in your Africanity, your African place, but that doesn't mean that you have to be off in a traditional community, um, you know, the, like the people he'd interviewed earlier. And so, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. for me, what this means for Aruka, and this is this is something new for him, and that is that he is taking historicity into account. You know, as you read his discussions with Oginga Odinga, it's all about, you know, uh, not only his historical reflection on things, but what he learned from them and how you work within a historical context. I mean, mm. you know, you read his earlier interviews and they are just about, you know, what do you think about truth? I think this. What do you think about beauty? I think this. You know, and maybe he'll kind of <laughs> respond to those questions a little bit, but it's very much yeah. that kind of, here's a concept, tell me what you think, and then move on to the next one. Mm-hmm. Um, just the feel is just so different here. And so I think what he does is he sets up the sage as somebody who is, I mean, I would put the sage almost in the, in a category that is, you know, pre-ancestor, pre, you know, wise person looked at in the community as a repository of wisdom. Um, you know, I mean, mm-hmm. you can almost see this kind of, this kind of uh, where where do we go to get our our understanding of the world from? Well, we go to our elders, we uh-huh. go to our community, we go to our sages, we go to the ancestors, we go to all those places where there's a tried and true uh, uh, pattern of success, and also the mistakes that we can learn from from the past. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think it's a turn in the notion of the sage, which I think is fascinating, and 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 I don't really think it's been yeah, picked it really up is. on, in, uh, in you know in a lot of the reflection on on sagacity. Mm-hmm. So, and then the other uh, chapter you mentioned um, on on the literary. I mean, I already mentioned Huntanji. You know, there's a missing chapter in this book. I'll tell you that right now, and it's on Huntanji. Um, okay. It should it should be between chapters four and five. It should be, uh, or sorry, no, between five and six. It should be after the chapter on Ubuntu and before the chapter chapter on um, uh, the literary. And is this an editor decision or is this a shadow this, chapter? <laughs> well, the chapter. The reason I didn't put it in is that I've already published it, and I published it ten I years ago. It. So here's another bit about where this book came from. Uh, there's this journal in South Africa called uh, Philosophical Papers, 
and um, they have this series called Rereadings. And what it is, basically, it's not particularly an African philosophy journal that does, you know, analytic philosophy, mm, you know, yeah. mostly analytic, but some, you know, continental occasionally, and, and there's trying to do some African as well. And so in the rereading series, they ask people to go back to a classic paper or chapter and revisit it. Basically, you know, what do we say about it now? How has it changed things? All of those sorts of things. And so they asked me to do that. Mm-hmm. And the, the, what I chose was Pauline Huntanji's famous chapter, African Philosophy, um, uh, Myth and Reality. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if there was a single chapter or paper in, you know, contemporary African philosophy that might be deemed the most important, that would be a pretty good contender for it. Yeah. And so what I did in that chapter was kind of do a turn on Huntanji and picking up a small even just a, a word that he used, he was the word fold. And if, you know, for a Deleuzian, you know, the word fold, which comes from Leibniz, <laughs> is very important. And yeah. so I tried to start reading Huntanji against himself. Um, and so in a sense, that's the, that's the missing chapter in this book, um, because I think it's Huntanji already foresees, even against his own interests, that he needs to talk about a literature in a way that he hasn't really done so. He wants a literature yeah. that's a little bit like positivism, right? You know, here's a literature. It's scientific, right? We know what science is. And now once we have that, we can build a philosophy on it. Mm-hmm. But the fact is science isn't like that anymore. Science is, is, is complexity theory. Science is, you know, um, relativity. Science is a lot of different things that is not so cut and dried. Yeah. And so what I'm trying to do in the chapter on liter- literary tradition of thought, especially with, with Sophie Olawole, is to pick up that idea that mm-hmm. what does a literature really need to look like? You know, let's take, let's take Huntanji as if, okay, let's grant him that. Philosophy needs a literature. What do we mean by a literature? Well, what we don't mean is an archive, if by archive we understand a set of texts that have already been established and are now determinative on what we think, right? Yeah. And I know that's not Derrida's archive or Foucault's or whatever, but mm-hmm. we can yeah, think about an archive in that static sense, right? Yeah. And so what I, the, the case I tried to make, basically, was that what Sophia Lawoli imagines is a literature which um, is, is a living corpus, right? So if you mm-hmm. want to talk about, let's say, Nigerian literature, Right. Well, not everything written in Nigeria is going to fit within that category, but it's going to be revised by the additions that come along, right? By the I new see. things that are written, right? And so it's it's something that's living. It's not just something that's in the past there to be looked back on and, and, mm-hmm. and you know, in some kind of encased in amber or something. And so if we think about literature that way, it becomes an enacted sort of space, right? As mm-hmm. we add to that, it's not just representing what our culture or what our society is about, it is actually creating it. We are engaging it in order to create. That's how we create. And so Mm -hmm. I think Sophie Olawole is giving us this really interesting door open to the idea that to do philosophy is to look forward, is to create something new, not simply to, um, you know, as I read Huntanji, to be the basis for a philosophy that can only come along uh, after after it's established yeah no that's really interesting i mean it does it you know it, as you say it, it, it 
you know, and I, I was interested in this relationship between the sage and the literary in these two mm -hmm. chapters. And you really brought it out there in the sense of, you know, delinking those notions of sage and the literary from sort of past present reportage or repository, right. as, as right. you put it. And instead thinking about this as a space of, of creation of concepts, creation of forms of life. Yeah, and I think um, tradition then comes in with that. You mentioned tradition earlier, and, you know, um, Kwame Jitsha talks about uh, tradition as what is taken up, not what is handed down. So that's, yeah. a, in, in a certain sense, uh, you know, cutting against the, well, if you wish, the tradition of the word, right? I mean, uh, tra <laughs> yeah. tradere, tradere is usually what is handed down, what is passed down. Mm. And Jitsha says, well, you can pass down all you want, but if somebody doesn't pick it up, it's no longer tradition. Right. And so he yeah. makes this interesting turn on it. And, and, and I think he's also opening the door to what I want to see happening here. I mean, that for me, that, tr that notion of tradition is something that remains living. Right. <laughs> the, what is in the past is not by definition part of tradition. You make it yeah. part of tradition by acting on it. So let me ask about, um, you know, this strikes me and, and I'm also interested if, if, if you have a bit of a correction of this from, you know, because you, you really write from an African philosophical, like a continental philosophical uh, perspective rather than someone who's engaging with, with the continent of Africa and its traditions or philosophical uh, uh, texts and figures. But when I, when I look, when I read the book and when I even just looked at the table of contents, what stood out to me in, in terms of the African thinkers is there were two who I think were quite familiar mm -hmm. to a wide readership across the Atlantic world, right? Temples, who you've spoken a little bit about, or a good bit about, and I think in some ways answered my question about temples, but also Mbembe. Mm. And so, you know, Mbembe's work has been, especially, you know, the, his more recent work on Fanon has, I think, really changed Fanon's studies and thinking about, right. you know, the future of the post-colonial and, and humanism after humanism and all of these classic Fanonian questions, questions of the post-colonial. And, you know, there's been a lot of engagement, a lot of translation, a lot of engagement with Mbembe's work. And I'm curious just to, to, to seize on, on him and that chapter in particular. What do you think that, that your treatment of Mbembe tells us about his work and thinking that is... I hate to call it just new, but, you know, what what is the framework of your book reveal about Mbembe that, you know, goes beyond some of, I think, what have really received tropes about his right. work now? Right. Well, so with Mbembe, um, you know, I focused in especially on his essay, African Modes of Self-Writing, um, which was written, I guess, about 20-ish years ago at this point. And fantastic was, essay. Yeah. Amazing essay, but what was, what really struck me was the exchange in the journal Public Culture on on that essay. I mean, he writes it, and then there's what I mean, like ten respondents to it or something like that. A lot yeah. of people responded to it. Yeah. And and if you read his response to the respondents, um, it's almost like he's a little bit annoyed that they didn't quite get what he was trying to do. And I I found that a little intriguing. Like he's not annoyed with everyone, and not at all times, and all of that. But it's like it's it's like there's this little slight peevishness about, you know, uh, mm -hmm. I was trying to do something. What you focused on was, you know, uh, or how you read me was that, um, 
you know, these strategies of, of uh, anti-colonial resistance uh, are uh, passe and we're not, you know, we don't need them anymore. Well, that's not what I was yeah. saying at all, he says. Um, but I was, so I was interested in, in, in that, but I was also interested in the idea that, you know, this argument that I was making throughout the book, which is, you know, questions create a space of thought that sounds great, but that space of thought can be dire. That can be brutal. That can be yeah. horrible. And what what does it look like when that happens? And so I wanted to read Mbembe, especially the way he talks about um, slavery, um, colonialism, and apartheid, which are the, the, the kind of deeply problematic aspects of African life. And, you know, some of this is echoing, um, you know, on the post-colony as well, the way he talks about these things there. Mm-hmm. And what I wanted to do was basically say, so what is it, what, what resources does he bring to thinking about that in a manner that's not just nativist, uh, that's not just, um, you know, one of, these, one of these strategies that he's really trying to critique. I mean, uh, people read him, I think, as, mm-hmm. you know, what, we shouldn't be pushing back against colonialism? And of course, he's never said that or, or, or <laughs> yeah. even suggested it. but. So what I wanted to do in that chapter was really run a parallel and run what he was saying through the lens of place, uh, specifically the notion of the loss of place or the, 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 um, the tragedy of place, if you wish. Um, mm-hmm. And the way I tried to do that was to run, run parallel the notion of torture. And there's a, there's a fair bit of writing from um, Holocaust survivors on torture. Uh, Jean Amory, for example, is an important figure mm-hmm. in this, um, and John Emery is, spe- is especially interesting because he's so philosophical about it, and uh, he's yeah. so philosophical and explicitly so about the ways that his places have been lost and what it means to live with that mm-hmm. loss of place that you will never get back again. Yeah. Um, and and so I wanted to run that in parallel and basically say the same thing is going on here. The situations are different, right? I don't want to conflate, you know, the experience of one one you know, uh, people to another people or anything like that. But I think Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. when it comes to thinking about how place is established, but also how it's lost and how it's compromised, I think that's what Mbembe is trying to say. He's trying to say, you know, um, how do we live in this place now that has had the imprint of colonialism on it, has had the imprint of apartheid, which has not gone away, that has had the imprint of slavery, in the loss of its people dispersed all over the world. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so what I look to in the discussion of torture in parallel with those things is the way that place, you know, people trying to treat torture, if you look at the literature, have focused either on the uh, physical sequelae, the physical results of torture, or on the mental and psychological aspects. But they very mm-hmm. rarely treat both of those at the same time. I mean, the literature is yeah. almost bifurcated. But there are a few. There are a few that put that together. And for me, that's a kind of an activist moment. What does it mean to embody that and find the place? And so you find these yeah. treatments that are about, about uh, dance, about walking a, a space, about kind of reclaiming whatever small space could be reclaimed. And, you mm-hmm. know, this is not magic. I mean, John Amory committed suicide. I mean, other Holocaust survivors, you know, could not find that place again. Yeah. But if there is to be a hope after that kind of tragic um, uh, loss of place, I wonder if it is not to focus on the ways of embodying place all over again. 
And for uh-huh. me, the you know, once I've made that diagnosis, this takes me into Suzanne Césaire's uh, approach to negritude, which is she's calling Martin Eakins to a version of negritude that is building a future. It's, it's embodying mm-hmm. the place in which they find themselves. And she's using surrealism to kind of shake them out of their dogmatic slumber into this could be something great. Why don't you people see this? Um, yeah. And, and, and so for me, those chapters kind of, the, the, the Mbembe chapter sets up, you know, Suzanne Césaire's answer to mm-hmm. how can mm-hmm. you live in a place all over again when this kind of thing has happened? Yeah. No, I love that. That's, that's wonderfully put. Thank you. Um, I just want to say as, as a side note, this, this podcast series is, is a collaboration with Journal of French and Francophone Philosophy, which mm. has an issue on, a special issue on Jean-Almerie. So, oh, lovely. Um, oh, yeah. And, I, and it, you know, it's, it's some really great philosophical work because, as you oh, said, Emery is, is so deeply profound. philosophical about uh, torture. So profound. So your conclusion, um, which, uh, although, you know, it's not the body of the book, uh, my favorite part of the book, I, I think everybody loves acknowledgments and conclusions, as I think what everybody <laughs> reads first. But, I, I know um, I do. <laughs> I guess. Um, future events. Um, I'm curious, uh, you know, you've, you've talked a little bit about it, but just to ask it directly, you know, what's so important about this notion of future in African philosophy, um, as as the you know what you're retrieving uh, from particular texts and figures, what's important about this notion of future? You know, you've talked about the uh-huh. you know, past, present, future distinction being uh, really formative here, but also events. Right. So the idea of the future, you know, I mean, this is a book, yes, about African philosophy, but it's really about philosophy. It's really about, I think, some of the. Mm-hmm. Um, some of the ways that we limit ourselves when we think about uh, what what doing philosophy actually means, and this is you know betraying I suppose my um, you know roots in in hermeneutics and you know and even you know before that in theology, um, you know the question of what it means to build a future, what it means to work towards a future, to create what is not yet. Um, you know this mm-hmm. is why in some ways I'm attracted to elements of Deleuze. Um, you know, Derrida does this, I think, very interestingly, uh, you know, in, in a variety of places. And so for me, the, the, the notion of the future is um, moves philosophy away from representationalism. You know, this is going to sound like Rorty maybe, but, um, you know, away from its, its imperative to try and get the world right, which I'm not saying we should not do, but I mm-hmm. think it's always a moving, moving ground on which we stand. And, you know, that moving ground, you know, I mean, I, I, I get frustrated with philosophy that does not see the philosopher as being part of the world in, that's being described, right? Yeah. And we are so much part of that world, and, and, and I don't think we can ever stand back from it. And so, for me, the future is, what can we create that, um, that embodies our values, our past, our hope, right? I will use the word mm-hmm. hope. Suzanne mm-hmm. Cesare does too. Um, you know, I mean, there's a certain therapeutic uh, sense, I suppose, for me writing this in, um, you know, in the country in which I live, uh, you know, at the time in which I live here. You know, uh, I often wonder where the hope is in a country that yeah. seems to be moving back you know, towards a much more, um, 
you know, uh, restrictive view on on uh, mm -hmm. what counts as public discourse. I mean, I'm in the state of yeah. Florida, where we are, you know, by law limited uh, in classrooms, at least on on, um, you know, the kinds of things that we're supposed to be allowed to bring up. And there's obviously fighting back on that and sort of thing. But, you know, I when I look at that and I get down about, you know, have we not learned anything? I wonder, wh how do we build hope? How do we find hope? Mm -hmm. You know, and it's not so different, I think, you know, what I'm talking about in the African context to any other context. What I'm trying to position this book as being is, what can Africa teach the rest of us? Not what, uh -huh. what can Africa learn from the rest of us, but what can it teach the rest of us? Mm -hmm. In a very profound, deep sense, I think. And I think, I don't know what it means to live with the history of slavery, with the history of apartheid. I, I, didn't, I didn't grow up under those things. I grew up in Canada. Um, mm -hmm. What does it mean to learn from those who did live through that and, yeah. still, and still can search for hope? I mean, that to me is a profound stance on the world that I need to understand better. I like that. And I, I will also echo, you know, as I, the word hope had been something that for, you know, for me personally, for years and years, uh, I just wanted nothing to do with it. Just, it just seemed, <laughs> seemed to be um, completely uninteresting word. And then the last dozen years have been really hopeless. And I think yeah. there's, there's nothing like a, a phase of accentuated hopelessness that yeah. uh, makes you think about hope very differently. And as you say, is a reminder also of you know, certain kinds of privileges that can come with not seeing the hopelessness, right? Yes, yes, um, yes, and, yes. And uh, then all of a sudden feeling that shock and realizing, no, when, when you were talking about, you know, centuries of unimaginable hopelessness, you know, what is taught out of these, yeah. these moments. Because, yeah. you know, that, and that's again why the notion of the sage like, matters to me, you know, right. it's, it's, you know, it has a prophetic function, right? A critique of the sure. present and the interests of the future, but also drawing on the past. Sure, absolutely. And the, so the word event, which is the other thing you mentioned, um, yeah. you know, for me, I'm taking this, you know, uh, I mean, there's a Heideggerian echo, uh, you know, Ereignis, uh, there, you know, you see this, Claude Romano has written three books about it, uh, Deleuze, uh, Badiou, I mean, it's just, you know, the notion of yeah. the event, and it's not the same notion in, across all of these spaces, but... You know, for me, what it is, is, is that, I mean, I almost think of it in this Deleuzean sense of virtualities or a line of flight, you know, there is a mm -hmm. moment in, in, a, in a complex system in which a perturbation is, is, uh, is entered, is, is included, and then things go in a different direction. Yeah. So, you know, in complexity theory, there's this, um, when I talk about complexity to students, I often show them this video, this TED talk forgotten who does it but he says he's talking about complexity in the animal world and he says let me show you complexity in the animal world um complexity is not complicatedness right it's not something that is you know like a space shuttle is complicated has a million parts they all have to work together all of that that's not complexity mm -hmm. here's complexity and so he shows this video of these these six little puppies just bouncing around they're happy and there's a bowl in the middle of the room and he pours milk into the bowl and then these puppies start going for the milk and then they start walking around like a pinwheel uh, all six of them trying to get the best uh, uh, angle on the milk and and he says would you have predicted from these puppies before we put milk in there that they would turn into a pinwheel and the answer is of course not there's nothing 
that that could have hmm. led us to believe that not in their genetics not in their anything right and yet uh-huh. this perturbation in that chaotic system brought about this kind of order and see hmm. for me that's interesting that that's yeah. the, that's the event right what can bring about order in a uh, chaotic or a complex system and you know um there are a lot of answers to that you know, if I was to try and offer those answers, that they'd almost certainly be wrong. But I think we can sometimes see them after the fact. Yeah. Right? We can see those perturbations. We can see the Stephen Bicos who realized that there was a shift in how you thought about intellectual life in South Africa. And he, he, he was a perturbation in that system. It moved from the parties, you know, once the parties had been abolished, he moved it to the universities. He moved it to the townships. He moved it to places. He got killed for it. Right? It yeah. was not a safe thing for him to do, but he was a perturbation in a system that changed the entire conversation. Right? Yeah. You know, and, and we, could, we could probably multiply examples on that. So for me, I'm looking for those events. What mm-hmm. events open up a new future that allow us to ask new questions, allow us to think about things in new ways? And I think um, you know, what I've written in this book hopefully leads up to that you know, question that I can leave with, with the reader. Well, maybe then that's the answer to this uh, penultimate question I have for you, which is, you know, what you want, what you want readers to, um, right, to walk away with, from the, with having read this book, and and I say walking away, and, and I always say this at the when I ask this question, I don't really like the idea of takeaway, right? It's I don't like <laughs> this idea that that you're sort of offering some property that then the reader takes, right, right? And, and, right. and makes it what they want. But at the same time, you know, we all know that readers do what they want with the book and you can't right. control that and it's probably good. That's an imperial impulse. But we also do want, you know, <laughs> we do want readers to, I always just say, like, walk differently yeah. after reading the book. Like, there's something about them, whether it's their intellectual walk or their political values walk or something moves differently after the books we write. Yeah. And in that sort of spirit, my question is, you know, where do you want readers, or how do you want readers to walk differently after reading this book? Well, so I think it depends on which readers we're talking about here. I mean, you know, sure. when I go to the notion of place and my own sense of place, my own, you know, knowing my place, which means knowing the resources from which I come from, but the questions that really I am not the right one to ask. To mm-hmm. some extent, I hope African readers will read this and they will pick up the ball. They will ask the questions that I cannot. They will ask, mm-hmm. what does it mean to ask a new question in a township in South Africa? What does it mean to ask a question in a slum? What does it mean to ask a question in a, in a, um, you know, a city like Lagos, which is projected by the end of the century to have 100 million people? What does it mean to ask a question in a space that, that they live in, but is incredibly challenging, incredibly, you know, crying out for a a, a new form of life, crying out for a new Mm -hmm. way of thinking about what is it, how do we live well in these places? That's what I hope others will take from it. I mean, what I hope um, people in in Western philosophy will take from it is um, that African philosophy has the potential to be a whole lot deeper and more interesting than they gave it credit for. You know, I I hope that this is not, you know, if people actually read these chapters, they will say, oh, 
there's there's some really interesting depth there that we just didn't didn't mm-hmm. even see, didn't even know was there. Um, you know, for cognitive science folks, what I hope is that they'll look at this and say, um, cognition is how we live, not just an explanation or something that needs explanation. Mm-hmm. So what does it mean to, to make that turn? What does it mean to think about, you know, an activism as something which we actually live, not just something that we use for a more adequate explanation of uh, a phenomenon in the world? Um, so, you know, there are probably other kind of communities that I have hopes for, but those would be the three main ones I could think of. I like that. Um, let me turn that uh, as a final question, turn that to you, you know, just as readers, uh, you know, as readers were affected, you know, sometimes deeply, sometimes with great irritation, mm. sometimes <laughs> moderately by what we read. Uh, writing is a similar process, right? We, we, yeah. we begin a book in one way and we exit a different kind of person. Right. Mm-hmm. When, when sure. It's part of when I said at the beginning of writing a book's an existential event, it does mean that we walk away differently yeah. after a book. And so I'm curious yeah. to hear how you walk away differently after this book. And that's also uh, part of that is an invitation to talk about if you want uh, future projects. I really hesitate to say what's next because we do have a right to enjoy our books when they come out without this bullshit. Like, you know, well, what book is next? You know, um, you know. <laughs> We all ask that at 3 a.m. anyway, so why ask it in a podcast? But yeah. um, but it is a chance to talk about if if you had you know if this is leading to different projects, but also how the writing the book itself may have shifted your own thinking and your own movement as an intellectual. Yeah, well, you know, uh, some of my other work. I mean, I've talked about place and space stuff, but some of my other work has had to do with um, uh, the nature of interdisciplinarity. Some of it has had to do with digital humanities. Um, so I've had, you know, a number of different angles and what I found with this book is a lot of that stuff coming, coming together, coming into focus. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that was quite satisfying actually, because often in the past I felt a little bit, um, pulled in different directions and, you know, I could always tell myself the story of how these things all fit together, but it's Mm -hmm. a little bit difficult for anyone else to see. You know, I, I mean, I've got I've got some weird stuff out there that, you know, that I've that I've written about or, you know, it just doesn't seem like it all adds up. But, you yeah. know, in my own, you know, twisted mind, it does. Um, so so I think, you know, in some ways, this book has given me more confidence to really uh, bring those things together um, and, and, and not apologize for for doing so. Right. So not apologize when I'm doing African philosophy to talk about cognition, to talk about, mm-hmm. um, you know, the digital, um, you know, which I do in the uh, Mugobe Ramosa chapter where I talk about, you know, the notion of Ubuntu as, 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 as um, tapping into a kind of digitality, mm-hmm. which uh, mm-hmm. is larger than us. And, and so the real issue is about the interface between the digital and the analog. And mm-hmm. so, um, you know, so that sort of thing I feel better about doing. As far as where, you know, what's next, I mean, there's, yeah, there's sure, there's always more books. Um, you know, I've, I've been thinking about, um, and this might just start as, a, um, a, a, as an essay or something like that, but I've been thinking about the idea of humanism in connection with Africa because it rides in the background of so much that like the Africa philosophy is humanist in some way or other, and it's, you know, made made explicit by people like Kenneth Kaunda, uh, you know, who had uh, African humanism as his, you know, thing. What would it look like for African philosophy to not be humanist? 
to not mm -hmm. uh, to be a humanist or something like that. And so I'm, you know, I'm working on some of those things now. And then the other thing, which the very last line of the book sets up in the in the uh, conclusion of uh, future events, uh, the very last line is this uh, perhaps self-indulgent little uh, uh, thing that I do, which is a cycle of questions, uh, three questions and answers that cycle and cycle. And the very last one is where does African philosophy begin? It begins with a question. And so I want to write more mm -hmm. about questions. Um, I think that surprisingly, this is something that has not had the philosophical attention that it needs. It has had it in specific areas. Like we, we, yeah. we know a lot about that in logic with eretetic logic. We know about it in philosophy of science. We know about it in hermeneutics. We know about it in, you know, like you can identify lots of places, but very few of these places have actually um, uh, come in any conversation with each other. So um, I'm going to write about questions, I think. I like that. Yeah, the interrogative mode is, yeah. is uh, hard to talk about because it's, you know, go back to our very first part of this conversation. It's so difficult to to talk about philosophy yep. in the interrogative because it's yep. so obsessed with the precision and mode yep. sort of mode of delivery of answers so yeah absolutely uh, i so really I, like that direction i think there's something really interesting to be worked out here so that's uh you know and i've i've, I've kind of scattered ideas on that through a bunch of different places but it's time to pull them together i think well, hurry up and write it so we can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> just jot it down, you know, it's just writing. Sure, easy, sure, no sure. <laughs> well, let me say again, uh, thank you so much for taking the time to do this. I love the book. I thought it was super interesting. And um, uh, I know I speak for a lot of people who have read it and who will read it. I really learned a lot, too, not just about particular figures, but as you've laid out in this conversation. Uh, about a reflection on the meaning of what we're doing when we do philosophy or engage yeah. philosophical thinking. And, and I'm really grateful for that. I, I love books um, that challenge my own perspectives, but I also really love books where I just learn. And I felt like I learned so much from this book and well, uh, thank appreciate you, so you much. for that. Thank you so much for the invitation. I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed the, the conversation. and. Uh, yeah, I, I, I hope readers, um, you know, find something uh, interesting and useful from it. Well, we will tweet it out and see how that goes. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> All right, Bruce. Well, great talking and yep, uh, take bet. care. Okay. Thanks a lot, John.